The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. Petty, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic racist. Infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomania... He's megalomaniac, basically is what this person is saying. Sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Richard Dawkins, the God delusion. Now there is some delusion going on there. But it's not on God's part. Boy, talk about totally missing the point. Boy, hatred of God just drips from the quote. Hatred of the God of the Word of God, of the true and living God. Misunderstanding of who He really is. Now that is a, that is a sort of dramatic example and, and, and of a man unworthy of respect whose methods are as any other. self Referential in a hiding from the true and living God out of hatred for God and love of sin. But a lot of people talk like that. Have you ever heard anybody say, and you'll hear people say, I prefer the God of the New Testament. I don't like the God of the Old Testament. He's mean. But the God of the New Testament is a God of grace. I I pick Jesus. Well, you can't pick Jesus. You can't pick the Son and not pick the Father and not pick the Holy Spirit. You can't pick, just cherry pick His revelation and just focus on your interpretation and preference over what love is and grace is and how God should act. Who is God? That's the most fundamental question, isn't it? Who is God? I mean, we know he's here. We're all without excuse. Read Romans 1, not this sermon. Who is he? What is he like? Listen, a lot of people say things like, oh, that he would answer. Oh, that he would come down and tell us who he is. Oh, that we could hear it from his voice. Well, he has. He lived among us, ultimately in his son, the image of the glory of God. The sufficient revelation of God, Hebrews 1. He's all we need. He has come down. He has told us who He is and who we are. and He has revealed His grace. He has died for us and been raised and reigning for us and coming again. But I had an Old Testament text in mind this morning as, and, and I don't remember what triggered this. Something triggered this last week and I couldn't remember what triggered the, me and pointed me back towards this text. But you know, as we're talking about loving and following God and being a witness for God and all, you know, going through this trouble with the coronavirus and all of the other trials of life, it is, it is a good thing to periodically ask us ourselves fundamental questions. The most fundamental question is, who is our God? And the text I have in mind, which you heard me read, and I'm only, listen, don't worry, I'm not going through the whole thing. I have a hard enough time being succinct without having such a text that large. But one I have in mind this morning from Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is God Himself speaking, saying who He is. He, He actually speaks to Moses and succinctly reveals to Moses who He is. 
Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, just picking up with Israel being uh, in Egypt and, and having it good for a while, but then another, you know, Pharaoh comes and doesn't know, and they're, they're in bondage and slavery and hardship, and God raises up Moses to deliver his people, sends him to them, delivers his people out of Egypt uh, through the Exodus, you know, that's what we got, taking them out all the way to the Red Sea, delivering them through the Red Sea, bringing them all the way to Mount Sinai, where he will give them his law. And so he, he has called Moses up onto the mountain. Moses is gone longer than people think he should be. And certainly the, you know, the, the sort of under, other than Moses, those who would have been leaders of the people are, are dissatisfied and grumbling and saying, we don't know what's happened to Moses, he's gone I mean, you can relate to that somewhat, right? You see all of this awesome sight and the mountain burning and Moses goes up and he doesn't come back for 40 days. You might start to think, dude, burn up. Anyway, the people grumble and rebel and pressure Aaron to make them a god that they can see an image, which he does, and it's a golden calf and they surround that calf with all sorts of celebration, fleshly, idolatry, idolatrous worship. They call that calf the Lord who delivered them from Egypt. So as Moses is coming down the mountain, he and Joshua hear this tumult and the sound of the people, and, and lo and behold, they're worshiping this idol, and Moses breaks the tablets and rebukes the people and grinds up the idol, and they have to drink the water. And I mean, you know the whole story. It's an amazing story. And, and, and even Aaron, when Moses presses him, says, well, all the people gave me this gold, and I threw it in the fire, and out come this he had, They had fashioned this idol. But the people were unfaithful. At the very time that God had delivered them out, brought them to Mount Sinai, the, the, the mediator of the Old Covenant, Moses is on the mountain. He's getting God's Word. He's getting God's law for the people. And they have broken out in idolatry. Moses has broken the tablets of the law. And what we see before us here in context is a covenant renewal. It's God's grace. He's not, therefore, writing off the people. He is going to renew the covenant through Moses' intercession, give more tablets with, written by his finger with the law on them so that the people know what he requires of them. It's a gracious thing. God inter uh, Moses intercedes. God responds. He promises to renew the covenant, and on we can go in Exodus. But in the, con in the context of that, he reveals himself through Moses' intercession. And what he reveals here is that he is both merciful and just. And I used mercy to sort of summarize the verse 6 and the first part of verse 7 and justice. You see that there at the end. And so the main point I want us to remember and get and look at and see in this verse is that the true and living God is a God of mercy and justice. Really the application today is just something to know. Know your God. Right? Know your God. The true and living God is both a God of mercy and of justice. Look back at, this is an awesome thing. Don't, don't lose touch with how awesome this is. That Moses has asked to see his glory. Certainly God is limiting that for Moses' good. It says he will make his goodness pass for him. before him. He will see his back. But most importantly, he will hear his words. And the words that God speaks to Moses about who he is 
are instructive for us and show that He's both a God of mercy and of justice. So look first, if you will, in, uh, back in chapter 34, verse 6. We'll look at verse 6 through 7a as we see uh, the first part of what God says to Moses. The Lord reveals Himself as merciful. He reveals Himself as merciful. Look at, look at verse 6. It says, The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. And you see that in, in your English translation, if you're looking at the ESV and most other more uh, better translations, you will see that Lord is in all caps. God is proclaiming His name to Moses, through Moses, to His people, all the way down to us, we have it here. And He uses the divine name as He starts and He repeats it. It reminds us of the burning bush when Moses was called and, he, and God says, I am that I am. It says, you know, I am the Lord, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am the covenant-keeping faithful as He lays it out, God. And repeats it for emphasis. And Moses would have, would have known, he would have been familiar uh, with, this, with this name. It's God's personal name. And it's repeated for emphasis. And, and listen, each one of these names we can do whole sermons on, each this even setting the context, there's a lot here. But just want to bring out a little bit of, of this and, and whet your appetite for studying the attributes of God and knowing who your God is through His attributes, through His names, through His revelation. But he, it says, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, I am the Lord. What does He mean then? How is He going to further that, reveal that? He, he says, a God. But before He does that, this, this name speaks of His nearness. This name speaks of His concern. It speaks of the revelation of His redemptive covenant. It speaks of Him as a covenant-keeping God. The I am that I am. The self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal, independent, covenant-keeping God. This is His covenant name which reminds His people that God saves and God delivers His people. Think of Jesus. Why was he named Jesus? Because the Lord saves. Yeshua, really, Hebrew. The Lord saves. He's a saving God. He's, I mean, even this is good news. It's just his name is good news, that there is a covenant of redemption, that he keeps his covenant, that he's about saving his people and delivering his people. But this is his personal covenant name, and you'll see it every time you see it, at least in English, you see L-O-R-D in caps, it's, it's using this name. It, it's probably not right to pronounce it Jehovah. Right? That was a combination of the consonants and the, you know, then com combining that with Adonai. Uh, probably more right to pronounce it as Yahweh. But God's covenant name, look how he describes himself. We've talked about that, and we'll talk about it more. But we need to move on. The Lord, the Lord. Now watch, a God. That's the shortened form of Elohim. It speaks of Him as powerful and mighty majesty, that He's the only God, that He's creator, sustainer. He's unbounded and sovereign and in control. He's the only true and living God. He's just not one God among many, but He's the 
true and living God. The Lord, the Lord, a God, the one who is in control. Now he begins to preach a sermon, or he's already started, but Luther called it a sermon on God's name, on his own name. But he's the covenant-keeping God who is, who is the only true and living God, who is in control. All of his creation testifies, but he's gone beyond that. Now he's testifying in special revelation, which eventually will be in his word, which we have as to who he is. God is going to preach a sermon to Moses on his own name. It proclaims this sermon as we, as we look at what God says here. Now watch this, because a lot of people say, my God is a God of love. And what they mean by that, and they don't necessarily think it all the way through, that he's not a God of justice. He's just a God of sort of my kind of squishy, all-accepting love. But this sermon is going to reveal that he is love. But that kind, the kind of love in which mercy, grace, long-suffering, goodness, and truth are united with holiness and justice. Truly, when Scripture says God is love, it is this kind of love. The kind of love where you have mercy and grace and long-suffering and goodness and truth united to holiness and justice. God will never be unjust. He will never deny who He is as holy in order to redeem His people. But this sermon begins, and I've always been fascinated by the fact that God is revealing Himself to Moses and through Moses to His people, and He repeats His, his personal name, his, his covenant name, and, and He proclaims His, his power and majesty, and that He is control. And the first thing He says after that is merciful and gracious. Look at it. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. I mean, by the very fact that He is still corresponding with Moses and willing to continue to work with this stiff-necked people who have wasted no time in chucking what he has taught them and reverting to idolatry and idol worship. His own mediator that he chose has broken the tablets of his law and he doesn't, con you know, he doesn't confront him about that. He understands that, that, that passion. But he's willing to continue bearing long with his people and the first thing he says to them through Moses and to Moses is I am a God who is merciful and gracious. When you think about God, how do you think about Him? What are some of the first things that come to your mind when you think about God? Well, if you don't know Him savingly, you either won't have these as your first thoughts or you'll sort of have bent these to fit your self-centered worldview. But most of the time, these, even for believers, maybe are not the first places that we go. That my God is merciful. He's compassionate. He cares. Remember Jesus weeping. I mean, he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but over the pain and agony that sin had caused his people. Weep. This, when he says he's merciful, it means he's compassionate. He looks on need with pity. He pities his people. This is an attitude of one who wants to alleviate the suffering of another. 
you see someone suffering and your heart is bent towards them and you want to help them. That's the way God thinks. He wants to relieve our suffering. Our, he looks on us with pity and He has done great things for us out of His mercy and compassion. His mercies are new every day, the Word says. It's the kind of feeling parents feel when their child is sick or injured and in trouble. It, it tears your heart out. You want to deliver them from that trouble, that pain, that anguish. God is compassionate towards us. And boy, the better we get to know our sin and who we are outside of Him, the more good news that is, the more we can really enter into it. God is compassionate towards His people, even though they are sinful. I mean, look at it. These people have quickly descended into idolatry, and God has not just written them off, because He's accomplishing His redemption and working through this old covenant to the new covenant where His Son will complete the redemption for His people. That is planned. We are sinful, and He pities us. He pities, Scripture says, those that fear Him. More on, more on that later. But the very first thing out of God's mouth in revelation of Himself in the context of great sin and failure uh, of, of His people, the very first thing He communicates is, I am merciful. I am kind and merciful and willing to help and alleviate the suffering of my people. Surely it has to be his way, but he's merciful. Look at the second thing he says. He's gracious. The very first things God says is, I am merciful and I am gracious. And I mean, it helps us when we're talking to others about God to know sort of where to start and where to focus in general. It, this gracious, this word gracious usually refers to a, strong, a stronger person coming to the aid of a weaker person. Someone who is stronger coming to the aid of someone who is weaker. Not because they deserve it, but out of this compassion we've already talked about. This, this stronger one comes to the aid. These words are really related. You can see them as two sides of one coin, but um, they are really, really related. This person they're coming to the aid to has no claim on their favorable treatment. It is not earned. It is not merited. It's just surely out of, surely out of compassion, grace that the person helps out. You've, you've heard it described as, and this is probably too sort of simple, but it, it, I don't shy away from using it. When you think about mercy, is God give, not giving us what we deserve, right? What do we deserve from God? We deserve condemnation. We deserve rejection. We deserve judgment. But having withheld that because of the redemption He's working out in Christ, and, and in Christ He gives us grace what we don't deserve, which is forgiveness and mercy and blessing and salvation. So in mercy He withholds judgment and gives salvation to His people. And, and so He describes Himself first and foremost as merciful and gracious. Now, and this is, these are all flowing on one another, but, but look at this. The Lord, the Lord, the true and living God, the one who's in control and holy and hates sin and it should be judged and literally by strict judges, judgment judged immediately, right? But He is a God who is merciful 
and gracious. And look at the next thing it says. Slow to anger. He's merciful and gracious and slow to anger. God doesn't have a quick temper. Literally, the Hebrew there is He's long in the nose. God doesn't have a quick temper. He's not easily provoked. He is patient. Generally speaking, He is not quick to judge. He gives room for and time for repentance. His patience will run out. But He's slow to anger. He doesn't have a quick temper. He's not quick to fly off the handle. See, Richard Dawkins doesn't know God. He knows himself. He hates God because he loves himself and his sin. And that's, it's not just for him. It's for all of us who don't know God. But God reveals himself as merciful and gracious and slow to anger, not quick-tempered. That, that's convicting to some of us who have a quick temper. Dads in the home, are you snapping? Do you have a quick temper? Or are you merciful and gracious and long-suffering like your God? It's convicting. God calls us to be long-suffering because He is long-suffering towards us. Patient, gracious, merciful. Look at how, how he goes on. I am the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Emphasis, the covenant-keeping God who is in control. I am merciful and gracious. I am slow to anger. And now watch this, watch this. Uh, abounding. Abounding. When you think of abounding, you don't think of just a little bit, right? Overflowing. Big. A lot. He's abounding in first steadfast love. This takes us back to him, him and his covenant-keeping name, uh, his covenant love. This, this is Hesed, his covenant love for his people, his covenant loyalty and devotion to his children. He is abounding, overflowing, infinite in Hesed what the ESV calls steadfast love. It's not fickle. It's steadfast. It abides. It doesn't go away. It's immeasurable. God's covenant loyalty. He's faithful to Himself. He's faithful to His covenant. He's faithful to His promises. He's faithful to His people, never taking away His steadfast love from them, His covenant loyalty and love. And see, the faithfulness probably goes with that, as you see in the verse here. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Salvation is of the Lord. The covenant is His idea. His salvation in Christ is His idea. And He is sticking to it. And He is loving us and never will stop loving us in Christ Jesus and because of Christ Jesus. He is faithful to keep His promises, never breaking His word. He's dependable. He's not whimsical. He's steady. And these two together, His steadfast love and His faithfulness, probably express a single idea. It's a single complex idea of God's faithful covenant love. 
His abiding, faithful, covenant love. Now look at how this sort of plays out. So what does that mean for people? That God is a, he's, he's a covenant-keeping God with a, His covenant name is it revealed. He's powerful. He says He's merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Look at the first part of verse 7. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. That's probably thousands of generations. Keeping His steadfast love. Not giving up on His covenant love for His people for thousands of generations. So what does that mean for us? Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He's keeping for thousands of generations. He's guarding, protecting, preserving His love for His people. He will not lose it. For the thousands of generations of His people all the way down to us. And that means for us that in Him and His redemption and His plan, we have forgiveness of our sin. Look what He does here. He says, He piles up words. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He's piling up all three Hebrew words for sin to communicate every aspect of sin. He forgives. Every aspect of our falling short of His commandments, of His glory. We have not kept His commandments in thought, word, and deed. Not one of them. Not one of them. And every aspect of sin in our God and His covenant-keeping love, is dealt with and forgiven. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. He forgives all sin. This shows that no sin is excluded. It couldn't be. Every part and parcel of our sin had to be dealt with for God to accept us. For us to be reconciled to Him. To be His people in His covenant. Dwelling in the midst of His glory and grace. And His covenant love for us. See, God is saying, who I am as a merciful and gracious God who waits long and is, is patient and never gives up on His faithfulness, is accomplishing all of His purposes of grace in and through His people so that they have forgiveness of all of their sins through, we'll talk about how in a minute. But notice how God reveals Himself. He's a gracious God. He's a forgiving God. He's merciful. He's in control. He's, he's patient. He's kind. He's not quick of temper. And this is all very good news for us really doesn't sound like Dawkins' description of God, does it? Because his description of God is foolishness. It's false. It's folly. It's not according to the Word. I mean, he's, he's presuming on God's grace to even speak a word against him. He knows he's real. He hates him. But this is very good news. God is merciful. He is gracious. He is kind. He is forgiving. But remember, this kind of love is united with His holiness and His justice. So the Lord reveals Himself as just in the second part of verse 7. 
He reveals Himself as just. He's the same God of Old Testament and New Testament. He's a God of mercy, yes, but of also of justice. Now watch what it says here. See, we like the first part. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. But now this is where people begin to stumble. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. He will by no means clear the guilty. He's not like grandparents. He won't just sweep our sin under the rug. Sin must be dealt with. Forgiveness is found only in dealing with sin God's way. He cannot, because He's holy and righteous and pure and just, just wink at our sin. Act like it didn't happen. He will by no means just clear the guilty. Sin must be dealt with. Now look at what it says. Look at the, the outflow of this side. Apart from His grace, look what the outflow is. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Does that mean that He punishes the children for the sin of the father? Well, Ezekiel 18 would speak against that. Right? That each dies for his own sin. Certainly we inherited guilt and corruption from Adam. But in the context of parents and children, you know, God is not going to punish the children for what the Father does. But they are implications. They are infections. They are uh, problems that pass on. Parents, your kids want to be like you. They are going to imitate you. Now, that's generally speaking. Now, it's not each and every situation. You know, some kids are nothing like their parents and run off on their own ways. But see, the effects of our sin carry over to our children. That's what this is talking about, the effects of our sin. They are given over. The kids, in generally speaking, are given over to practice the parent's sin. They follow this example set. They follow your example. If you gamble with God's goodness and lose it, it will affect your children. Remember, you never stop leading your children as parents. How are we leading them? Now, they will, just like Adam and Eve and a lot of us, they will rebel against good leadership. And that's not your fault. But in general, kids tend to want to be like their dads, especially. But daughters, mothers, and kids want to be like their parents and will follow your example. I mean, I remember my dad saying, Don't worry about what I do. You do what I say. This is not how it works. I don't get a pass. Piper says it this way. Children share in the father's punishment because they share in his sins. His habits are perpetuated in the lives of his children. So... God is merciful and gracious and kind and forgiving. He's a covenant-keeping God who, who forgives His people every particle of their sin. But remember, He's also holy and just. There are some that He forgives and there are some that He doesn't. Some receive mercy. Some receive justice. What makes the difference? What makes the difference between those who receive all this mercy and grace we're talking about, and those who receive judgment. 
It's repentance. It's all through the Old Testament. If the sinner repents, he shall live. If the righteous person turns to sin, he shall die. I mean, repentance. Being renewed by God in our nature so that we, are grie we grieve over and hate our sin and turn from it and seek to walk in God's ways. Jesus said repentance should be preached to the ends of the earth. God calls His people to repentance. That's what Moses is calling the people to as they have failed with the calf. And you'll see a lot of the frustration Moses has to go through with this people. But what makes the difference is repentance. Now watch this. But it's not just left up to people to change their own hearts. It's a work of God's grace. He works repentance and faith in His people so that, so that we turn. It's a change of heart. Repentance is foundationally a change of heart where we go from loving sin to hating sin. Being grieved over it. Instead of enjoying it, being grieved over it. Wanting to be free from it. And actually purposing to live in the new life that was purchased for us because we have faith. That's the other side of conversion, which is trust in, receiving, trust in Jesus, receiving Him and His mercy as our only hope of salvation. We receive Jesus as He's revealed to us in the gospel. See, there's no forgiveness without repentance, without faith. Without, we have to be willing to come to God and receive His mercy and turn from our sin. He works all of that in us. There's no cheap grace. What makes the difference is, a, is repentance in the heart of God's people. See, this is what most, most people forget when they judge God. Most people, for, yes, they forget God's holiness. Don't understand a thing about what that is. They misunderstand justice. But they forget mankind's sin and rebellion against God. They forget what we deserve from God. We don't deserve anything good from God. We deserve condemnation from God. We deserve things to be far worse than they are. Man thinks he deserves blessing from God. Well, what he deserves is condemnation and judgment and rejection. Because we've broken God's law. We've rebelled against Him. See, we want His blessings, but we don't, naturally speaking, outside of Christ, we want His blessings, but we don't want Him messing with our life. We'll take Jesus as a ticket to heaven, but not as one who rules. Because we don't trust Him. You can pray all the sinner's prayers you want to, and you will not be saved if your heart has not been changed. I'm not saying you're perfect, but He brings you to a point of grief and hatred of sin, of owning that you deserve condemnation, of seeing that mercy is available in Christ and fleeing to Him for salvation. Trusting in Christ and Christ alone. Loving Him and seeking to live for Him. That's all a work of grace. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes. That believe encompasses a lot. That whole, that whole conversion, that repentance and faith that we have in Christ. Most people forget, don't pay attention to, think that God owes us good. That all of the suffering in the world is proof that God either is not good or He's not powerful. No, it's proof of our sin and rebellion. Sin brings misery. But there's, all, there's, there's full 
evidence to believe in the God who is merciful and gracious and kind and long-suffering and forgiving. See, God has revealed Himself as all of these things. But I want to ask you as I close, or about to close, you know how preachers talk, in closing, another 45 minutes. No, we're not doing that. But what is the ultimate proof that God is merciful? Is it not the cross? Is not the ultimate proof that God is merciful the cross? God's grace and goodness come to their fullest expression in Christ Jesus who willfully and purposefully went to the cross as the Lamb of God so that He could pay the penalty for His people's sin. And that offer is open to everyone. If you will come to Christ, if you will repent and have faith in Jesus, you may have this salvation as a free gift. He's purchased it. General offer of the gospel. We know the ones that will respond who God is at work in. But God reveals His mercy most clearly and poignantly in the cross. Think about this. Jesus was God's Son, God and man. He lived in perfect fulfillment of God's law. He deserved only blessing. He cried out even in the garden that God would take the cup from Him, but He submitted to the will because justice had to be satisfied. And so His Son went to the cross, and as cruel as the physical punishment was, it was nothing compared to the wrath poured out on Him on the cross for the people, for His people's sin. And because He was both God and man, He could drink that cup dry. He could take infinite wrath upon Himself and reconcile His people to God. Because He said, before He left the cross, He didn't pay any such penalty to the devil in hell. That's not what was going on. It is finished was uttered before He passed away on the cross. Mercy is someone else taking what I deserve so that I might have in grace what they deserve. Jesus took our condemnation so that we might have full acceptance and blessing. He made us children of God by dying. See, God's grace and goodness come to their fullest expression in Christ who died for us, who was buried, raised from the grave the third day. That proves it's all true. He's ascended and reigning and coming again someday. God's mercy and justice meet on the cross where grace is purchased for us. We've broken God's law. We've created our own idols. We can't condemn the Israelites for the golden calf. Yet God can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, Romans 3 says. The law points to our guilt and it points us to Christ who takes away our sin and our guilt. And the question is, will you have Christ? You can't be reconciled to God in any other way. Will you rest in His satisfaction for your sin? Will you rest in the gift of His righteousness to your account so that God can look to you and say, Righteous children accepted in my Son. See, the greatest proof of mercy is the cross where Christ died for our sins. But what is the ultimate proof that God is just? It's the cross. If Jesus had to suffer like that to save His people, the perfect image of God, God's Son, and He said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased at His baptism. If He had to endure condemnation for our sin, do you think God's going to let you off? 
without you coming to God His way, which is through His Son. See, Jesus took the blow of justice. God will, remember, God will by no means just clear the guilty. Justice had to be satisfied because God is holy and righteous and pure and cannot have fellowship with sin. He must judge it. Now, He doesn't have to judge it immediately. Patience, working out. He's long in the nose. He's long-suffering. He's working out His plan of redemption. But it must be judged in order for us to be accepted. Jesus took the blow of justice. Sin must receive justice, either by the sinner receiving justice or the representative, the federal head, Christ, the second Adam, who lived for us and died for us and was raised for us and is reigning for us and is coming again. The beautiful news in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, He was buried and He was raised the third day. And that is the good news that we believe and trust in Jesus. And in order to go from unbelief to belief, you have to repent, you have to turn, you have to have a change of heart. And if you truly go from loving sin and embracing it to hating it and grieving over it and wanting to be free from it and to receiving the mercy of God in Christ to trusting in Jesus, it will make a difference, the fruit of repentance in your life. But Christ died for our sins. He's the proof of God's mercy. He's the proof of God's justice. He gives salvation as a free gift to those who will trust Him. Another quote from Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death. The payoff of sin is death. What we deserve is death, both physical and spiritual. Condemnation, rejection, wrath poured out on us for our sin. That's what we deserve. The wages of sin is death, but, don't you love it? But, like in Ephesians 2, the free gift, notice it says that, it's true, it's actual, it's according to the original. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Mercy. The wages of sin is death and it must be paid, justice. You'll either pay it or Christ paid it for you. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Have you received the gift? Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone? Have you gone before God, seeing your sin and, and realizing there's mercy available in Christ? Like the tax collector, have you said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? In whatever way you said it and expressed what was in your heart, have you looked to Christ and received Him as your salvation? Has God granted you faith and repentance so that your hope is in Jesus in Jesus alone. See, God's revelation of Himself is true. He is the only true and living God. He is a covenant-keeping God who is merciful and gracious and long-suffering and forgiving. But He will by no means clear the guilty. He, we must come to Him in His way, according to His redemption, in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived and died and was raised and is reigning for us. Are you trusting in Jesus? If you are, you will see God differently. Your quotes about God will be better than the quote that we started with because you'll have a love for Him instead of a hatred for Him. Jerry Bridges, I want to end with a better quote than I started with. Jerry Bridges says this, The glory of God is the sum of all His infinite excellence and praiseworthiness set forth in display. His glory is His 
infinite excellence and praiseworthiness set forth in display. To glorify God is first of all to respond properly to this display. So instead of responding to the glory of God with hatred, as we saw Dawkins do, and and listen, we, we don't want to hate him, we want to pray for his salvation, right? That he'll come to see it this way. But those who know God respond to the revelation of him differently. Instead of with hatred, it's with worship. Look, to glorify God is first of all to respond properly to this display of his glory by ascribing to him the honor and adoration due his name because of his excellence. Now watch what he says. We call this worship. So the regenerate heart, the heart that has experienced his grace, the heart that loves God because of who he is and what he's done for us, responds to the revelation of his glory with worship. And that's what Moses did. In verse 8 it says, He quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshiped. It's like John in in Revelation chapter 1 who, as one of my friends says, sucked marble when Jesus was revealed. He hid on his face. He bowed before the Lord and worshipped with trembling. The cross leads to worship for those who know both His mercy and His justice in Jesus. Turn to Christ today and enter into His mercy, grace, and steadfast love. Cry out to Him. Rest in Him. He is a God who is merciful and gracious and long-suffering and forgiving if you will seek Him His way, which is in His Son. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, give us grace to believe Your Word. As believers, give us grace to believe it. To not let the hardships and the trials define for us who You are, but let Your Word define for us who you are so that we might rest and trust in you and live for your glory. And those who don't know you, maybe they're children listening to me today or adults or just save their soul. Grant them renewal. Grant them a change of heart. Grant them repentance that works in the heart. Grief over sin and hatred of sin and a turning to you to receive your mercy in Christ and a purpose to live growingly for you all the days we have on this earth. Help us to respond to your revelation with worship, with faith, with trust, with rest, and with worship. Worship together as your people on the Lord's day. Worship individually and with every day of our lives. Offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. As Romans says, because of your mercies to us in Christ. Lord, so bring those who don't know you to faith and rest in this gracious and merciful God who is the true and living God. Through the Lord Jesus Christ who is the true Savior. May your spirit apply this gospel and produce repentance and faith in the hearts of your people. Comfort and encourage your people with your word, and lead us forth for your glory. O God, bless us, we pray. In Jesus' holy name, amen.